whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order to attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I might lay it hold fast of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, we thank you today that you laid hold of us the day we called upon you in faith. And you did so with a purpose to shape us and to conform us into your own likeness that we might reflect the glory of the Father. I know, Father, there are many who are listening to me who are Christianized, but they're not born again. And for that reason, their life has never substantially changed, and their knowledge of you is only intellectual. So I pray today you'd work in their hearts, but for those of us who have met you, that you'd work afresh in our hearts, that we'd never be complacent. We know a day is coming when darkness will overtake the world and judgment will come, and the opportunity to warn men and women and boys and girls will be forever lost. So help us in this fresh week to be used of the Spirit of God. Help us to pray and cry out to you for opportunities and open doors in which to point people to the one whom we love so much. And if our love is stale, may you refresh it today. Father, I know that without you, I can't do anything, but with you, all things are possible. And so I thank you that just as you promised, you sent the spirit and fulfillment of the promised by the prophets, that you would put your spirit in us, that you would take our heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh, that you would enable us as we yield to him to walk in your statutes. Thank you for his presence. Thank you for his testimony that he bears witness that we've become a child of God. And I thank you for his help as the helper. And I pray for it today that you'd fill me and anoint me and use me, that his work amongst his people and those who are yet to become his people would be real and evident. I ask it in Christ's name, amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the Gospel of John. If you are new to the Bible, it's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're joining us for the first time, we have been working our way through the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And this, as far as I know, will be the last week we'll press the pause button on our series in Revelation. They have told me that the wire is already to the church building, and they're just going to hook up the connections in the next couple days, and our new campus in Grace, South Carolina will be able to be linked together with us, and all four campuses will be able to live stream, Lord willing, next Sunday. But before that, I have one more message that I want to speak to you about here from John's Gospel. Now, next week, come back. We'll open the door further to the coming campaign or battle of Armageddon. I think we're probably a lot closer than people realize and anticipate. 
But today I want to ask you a question. How is your eyesight? Now, I don't mean your physical eyesight. I'm talking about your spiritual eyesight. Many of you know that my dad, for 50 years, was an ophthalmologist. And when I was in the seventh grade, all the way through my high school years, I would clean his office building every day. And all the people who rented from him, and I'd go in after hours, and some of my friends would come see me, and I'd say, how about an eye exam? I'd put him up in my dad's chair, and I'd push the little electronic button, and up it went, and turn on the eye chart. And I never had the guts to do a glaucoma test with that little puff of air, but I did do many eye exams with my friends. And a few years ago, I was sitting in the chair of an eye doctor, and before he could turn the line, I said, T-Z-V-E-C-L, O-H-P-N-T-Z, that's 2015. And he started laughing. He said, you have the chart memorized. I said, I do. You're using the same American optical chart my dad used. Well, this morning, I want to do an eye test. I want to help those who know the Lord Jesus to be more proficient and excited and passionate about winning people to Christ. And those who have never met him, I want you to know him because he loves you and he wants to change you. Two questions that are very helpful in any spiritual eye exam. You've heard me ask them before. The first is this, on a scale of zero to 100, Zero, I have no idea at all. A hundred, I have no doubt at all. How certain are you if you died in the next 10 seconds that you would go to heaven? 25, 50, 75, 100, mark your answer. Put it out there in the margin of your mind. Mark it down plain and clear. Now, remember, just saying a hundred does not make it true. Jesus spoke of a great multitude of lost people who are absolutely convinced they are going to go to heaven And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. The second question is also very revealing, though. It will help you to know whether your percentage is correct if you did say 100. If you met God face to face and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? You say, I have no idea. Well, if you're not 100, what would you have to do to be 100? And if you said you were 100, on what basis? Now, mark that in your mind. Now, the answer you just said to yourself, I want you to repeat it to yourself. Say it to yourself again, not to me, just to yourself. I want you to hold that, and we're going to have our spiritual eye exam. John chapter 9, I'm going to begin by reading the first seven verses. Follow along. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, as an ophthalmologist, my dad who practiced for 50 years did thousands of surgeries. And I remember him telling me when he began to do his first cataract operations in 1950, 
A person would lay there on a hospital bed with, hand, with sandbags all around their heads for 10 days, and they could not move. And of course, by the time he completed his practice, he was doing the same operations in the office. They called them interocular lenses that were placed in the eye. And so he had the opportunity to help thousands of people to have better vision. But when he was serving in World War II in the Navy in Guam, he helped some of the Guamanians who had never had sight before to see, just a handful of them. What a thrilling process it was that a surgery could give sight to someone who had never seen before. It's precious. And on rare occasions, God will sometimes, apart from medical means, heal a person. Now, I'm not talking about the Benny Hinn scammers of our day who are total frauds. God doesn't do miracles any longer through individuals. That was unique to the apostolic age. But God does still heal, and He does still perform miracles sometimes apart from any human source. There was a famous Baptist preacher. I read his book many, many years ago. His name was A.C. Ford, a Baptist pastor in Tennessee. And he was married to his sweetheart. They went to Tennessee Temple together. And when she graduated, by that time, she had lost all her sight. She had a degenerative disease. She had to learn to tap with a cane, to read Braille, to use her other physical senses in order to make her way around in this world. And on one occasion, they were coming back from a revival meeting that he had preached, and they were both exhausted. It was near midnight. And A.C. said to Marilyn, Marilyn, let's just pray again and just ask that somehow God could restore your vision. You can read his book and his prayer is something like this. He said, Heavenly Father, I know that you are the God of might and power and that if it would be pleasing to you and if you would somehow get glory from it and if you would be more glorified for my wife having sight than not, then I just ask that you would touch Marilyn and that you would heal her eyes in Jesus' name. And as soon as he finished, she said, AC, I can see. He said, you don't mean it. Yes, I can see. And I can see your face and I can see you need a shave. He, she went and she grabbed the newspaper. He said, can you read the large print at the top? She said, I can't. I can read not only the large print, I can read the small print. It was a miracle. God had supernaturally touched her eyes, and they didn't know what to do. They just wanted to wake up all the neighbors in the apartment complex and say, God did a miracle my wife can see. God instantaneously, wondrously, marvelously healed Marilyn Ford. Well, on this occasion, the Lord Jesus does another miracle, and in many ways, Beyond the physical miracle he does, it's even a greater miracle. Nicodemus came to Jesus one day wanting to speak about miracles. And Jesus doesn't really change the subject because he speaks about another kind of miracle, a spiritual miracle, that he is the light of the world can open up your spiritual eyes. And by the way, if you know John's gospel, you know that he records seven miracles. We're in the miracle section that is outside of the resurrection, he records seven miracles, five that are unique to his gospel. 
And there are different words for miracles in the New Testament, but John repeatedly uses the specialized word for miracle, samion. And it's the Greek word that means a miracle with a message. In other words, John selects the seven miracles that he selects because he wants to underscore the message that Christ had behind those miracles. Remember, when he comes to the end of the gospel, he says, many other signs or miracles Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and in believing, you might have life in his name. And so this miracle that we're going to study this morning is a literal, actual miracle that has a message for those who have never crossed the line to come into the kingdom of God, and for those who have, that they might have a fuller life in Jesus Christ. Now, you can see there on the note-taking outline, it's in your bulletin, if you're new, that I've divided this into uh, five portions, five headings based on the five vignettes in which this narrative portion of Scripture falls. So, let's get started with the first five verses where we see the case behind the blind man, the case behind the blind man. Notice what we read in verse 1, and as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Now, we know from the end of chapter 8 in verse 59 that Jesus hid himself. Where is he? He's in the city of Jerusalem. And of course, in the preceding event, same day, he is uh, affirming that he is not just a man, that he is God in human flesh. He had just uh, done something for a woman caught in the very act of adultery. They uh, accused him of all kinds of wicked things, and then he affirms his deity And he says, in essence, I am God in a body. And so the Jews want to take up stones to stone him. Of course, God had prophesied that Messiah would not die by stoning, but he would die by crucifixion. He would be pierced through. His time had not yet come, so he went, he hid himself. And so he would have had to have left the temple region. And as you leave the temple gates, he would have went right by the place where the beggars were. And he passed by a man he saw blind from birth. And this case is especially interesting because it's the only case of blindness healed in all of the Bible where the man was blind from birth, at least where we're told that. Now, there may have been many, many other blind men that he healed, seven that are listed in the Scripture. And of the seven that he does, this is the only man who is healed who has congenital blindness. He had grown up from babyhood through his teenage years into manhood, totally blind. And he is a powerful illustration of conversion because when a person becomes a true Christian, he doesn't recover his sight. He is given spiritual sight that he had never had before. And for the first time, this man is going to first see physically. Notice what the disciples ask him here in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, we should be, that he should be born blind? Now, it was a well-established, popular teaching of the day, which we know from first-century historical records, that the rabbis taught that all suffering and sickness were the result of sin. And his disciples were a little bit perplexed over the application of this particular man with congenital blindness. They taught that some blindness, some sickness, some so-called deformations of one sort or another could happen not just because of the parents, but because of the baby in the womb. 
They affirm that life started at the moment of conception. That was a good thing to affirm because that's what the Bible teaches. But they also affirm that because King David had said, in iniquity did my mother conceive me, that because from the moment of conception we inherit the sin nature, and that's obvious, you see it in little children. You don't have to teach them to lie or to share, uh, to, to, to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. You have to teach them to share because by nature, by birth, by choice, we are all sinners. And they taught the rabbis of the day that a baby in the womb could actually commit an act of sin, and in committing that sin, it could bring on a sickness. So the disciples are asking, Lord, in this case, who sinned, the parents or the man? Now, certainly there are some uh, sicknesses that come into this world because of the parents' sin. No one debates that. That's just basic logic. A woman's on drugs. She's addicted to alcohol, and she brings real problems to the baby in the womb. There are people today who are having children, especially in the third world countries, where a mother with gonorrhea can pass blindness on to her little child. But the disciples, their attitude is not entirely what it needs to be. This is kind of more of a case study. This is a theological discussion that they want to have with the Lord. But Jesus taught the Son of Man did not come simply to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he is going to show real compassion to this man who is born blind. Jesus is about to heal this man both physically and spiritually, and he's going to carry this way beyond a discussion on theology. Now, there are many other theories that were floating around in the rabbinical schools that I won't take the time to explain but in the final analysis of, it, analysis of it all, it is true that in one sense, all sin is be, all sickness is because of sin. There was no sickness prior to the fall. Sicknesses, death, is not because we haven't evolved enough in the process. It means sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, God put man on notice that there's a real problem. But with that said... While Romans 5 affixed the facts that we sinned in and with Adam, and so we, in that sense, uh, inherit the sin nature, we are identified with Adam. And so the Bible can say that from Adam all men came, and that's something evolution wants to erase. They want you to believe that we came from, you know, a, a series of monkeys and animals and eventually evolved to the high state that we're at today. That's man's theory when he denies the God of creation and the God of revelation who teaches that we are all from one blood. So man has death and disease and sickness before the fall for thousands of years as the evolutionary process unfolds. But in God's word, death, sickness doesn't happen until sin enters into the world. Now, with that said, it's important to recognize that little children are viewed in God's eyes as innocent. And there are many illustrations that we could look at. In the New Testament, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a little child. For Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to a little child, and for that not to be true, then he would be using an illustration wrought with error. 
Now, there are some Christian people today who say if a little child dies, they go to heaven only if they are the child of a believer. And someone asked me that recently, so let me untangle that knot. In Ezekiel 16, 21, the prophet is referring to the slaughter of the children of pagan Jews, unbelieving Jews. They are so unbelieving that they are taking their little babies and they are offering them to the god Molech in fire. And God speaking through his prophet said, you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. He calls these little children, the little children of unbelievers, my children. And the same breath, Jeremiah, years before Ezekiel came on the scene, he tells us this, because they have forsaken me, God is speaking through the prophet, because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, and because they have filled the place with the blood of the innocent. Again, God is dealing with rank pagans, and by their sheer idolatry and by their defiling a holy place, by worshiping other gods, God reminds them that these little children that they had slaughtered are considered by him as the blood of the innocent. Likewise, in the Torah, Moses said this in Deuteronomy 1. They are ready to go into the promised land. And he said, moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good and evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. He's describing these little children that there are present when Moses gives his powerful sermon as having no knowledge of good or evil. So God sees little children as innocent. Likewise, the prophet Jonah, you remember him. In Jonah chapter uh, 4, you have the prodigal prophet in the first chapter. He's running from God. God sends him to Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction. He's swallowed by a great fish. He becomes the praying prophet. God gets his attention. In chapter 3, he becomes the preaching prophet. And then in chapter 4, he becomes the prodigal prophet. I mean, excuse me, the pouting prophet. He's pouting under a little bush, under a little plant that God had supernaturally grown up. And he is pouting because God didn't destroy all the Ninevites. Now, of course, Jonah learned. How do we know that? Because he writes the book of Jonah, and he writes it for our benefit. But God says to this pouting prophet, should I not have had compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, not to mention the animals there? Nineveh is a city of 600,000 people, 120,000 little children who don't even know what's left and what's right. And God said, if for no other sake but the kids, not to mention the animals... Should I have not had compassion on that place? Now, the Bible does not speak of an age of accountability, but there is certainly what we might call a point of accountability. There is a point known only to God, and I'm sure it is different for different children. When they cross that line, when they are totally responsible before him. So here's this blind man 
congenitally blind from the moment he's born. Can you imagine if the parents knew that within a few hours? Maybe they would have recommended what the governor of Virginia recommended this week. Well, this is a discussion for the doctor and the mother. If she wants to kill that little baby, that's her choice. The government has no right over a woman's body. Or maybe they would have agreed with Governor Como, the governor of New York, where he has this crowd of cheering people, included in the crowd, many pastors, so to speak, cheering. Because he says that a woman has a right to kill the baby right up until the day it is to be born. It is incredible to think that somehow a baby can move through the birth canal and become not just a clump of fetal tissue, but suddenly a baby. This has nothing to do with a woman's right to privacy. It has nothing to do with being a Democrat or Republican, with being a conservative or a liberal. It has everything to do with God's moral dictates that both of these men, and now a total of seven states, are going against God with their depraved, fallen, reprobate minds, where they're calling evil good and good evil. It has everything to do with infanticide and with murder. That's the day we are finding ourselves in. And who would have ever thought it? Who would have ever thought that we'd have a gallery of cheering people commending the wicked governor of New York for signing a bill that would give a mother one hour before she chose to exterminate the little baby in her womb? You see, this child was loved by these parents. This child was loved by God. They saw worth in this child. So the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And by the way, we cannot always determine the cause of problems that children bring into this world. Only God very often knows. Only God knows why some children have handicaps. The big answer is because we live in a fallen world. And because we have a fallen world, there are problems in this world. But remember what God said in response to Moses? God made it very clear that he was the one who took responsibility for sickness in the womb. Please, Lord, Moses said, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth, or who has made him dumb or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Some of you are here today, and you have children with special challenges, and you should write those verses out in the margin here, Exodus 4, 10, and 11. And God only knows why you've been entrusted with that special child. Now, again, Jesus said in verse 3, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's not saying that the man never sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's simply saying that this man's blindness was not caused by a specific act of sin that either he did or his parents did. And again, that does not mean that there is no human sickness that is not caused by an act of sin. Jesus affirmed earlier at another pool called Bethesda of a man who had a physical problem due to an act of sin he committed. After he healed that paralytic at the pool, he said, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. The implication is clear. He had done something that had brought this along. Maybe he was drunk and he fell off a wall. I don't know. But the fact is, is that God's purpose in this particular miracle in this day was in order that the works of God might be displayed in this man. Now, please understand, God didn't create this man with congenital blindness so that he could be a spiritual guinea pig so that on this particular day, Jesus could heal him. But Jesus does affirm that God is going to use the situation of this man who came into this fallen world with blindness to bring glory for himself. And that's, by the way, why God created you. He created you for his glory, for his honor, for his praise. He didn't create you for your own glory, but for his glory. And so when asked about his blindness, he doesn't answer the question in terms of the cause, but the purpose, in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And please circle the last letter on the word work. Do you see it? It's the word S. Not the work of God, but that the works of God. God was going to do more than one work for this man that day, not just a physical work, but a spiritual work, two works. Jesus was going to reveal spiritually to this man that he is indeed the light of the world. Look at verse 4. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Now, I have those first two words circled in my Bible. And in all the old manuscripts, the oldest, closest to the original, it says, we must. Not I must, we must. What Jesus is saying here by this word must is this is not good advice. This is something that is absolutely essential. These guys are in a theological ivory tower having a discussion over the cause of this man's sin. And Jesus takes it out of the abstract and he brings it down to where they live. There is something that we must do. And if you're here today and you know Christ, I want you to own this we must from this verse 4, because one of the whole purposes of this miracle is to show something that God has commissioned his people to do, to call people out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. And you cannot do that just by modeling what a Christian looks like. You must not only live a certain way, you must also speak a certain way. Because whoever will call on his name will be saved, but they can't call on him whom they have not heard, and they can't hear about him until someone goes and tells them. And the reason America is going down the tubes is because now the average Christian in America no longer shares the gospel. 
They don't even try to invite people to church. Look, I'm glad when we have like special days and special outreaches and, you know, I'm trying to sometimes create different venues in which we can invite someone who might not typically come to a Sunday morning meeting like our Oyster Rose pig picking that's coming up or the Valentine's banquet. Those are all good things or a friend day, but that should be way of life. We shouldn't have to have just an event to pull that off. We should be asking God every week, God, give me someone this week whom I can reach out to, whom I can point to the Lord Jesus. Some of us can't even remember the last time we've taken someone through the plan of salvation. And that's why some of us have never in our entire lives led anyone to Christ. Yes, I know God ultimately does it, it, but he uses human agents in which to pull it off. And so we can have a discussion on the five points of Calvinism. We can live in a tower like they lived in. Who sinned? And not do something that we must do. I got a 27-page letter from a listener from another state on why I should be a five-point Calvinist. And I started reading through the first page. I said, I'm not going to read this. I said, in the time it takes me to read this, I'm going to be able to find someone and lead them into the kingdom. <laughs> Listen, I'm not minimizing sound theology. It's critical. But if your sound theology does not flesh it out itself out, if your orthodoxy doesn't become orthopraxy, then it means very, very little. Jesus said in verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While I'm here, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dispel the darkness, and that's what you guys need to be doing. This is something that we must be doing together. And Jesus made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. It's emphatic. You meaning you. You are the salt of the earth. And that's why God tells us that we are to make the most of our time because the days are evil. Night is coming. And when it comes, it will be too late. You can't be lazy and apathetic and think that God is going to use you to bring people into the kingdom. And too many of God's men and women today are filling their lives with self-entertainment, and they think little beyond themselves to people who are lost and on their way to judgment. Okay, that's the case behind the blind man. Secondly, let's talk for a moment about the cure for the blind man. We read now in verse 6, When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. So here's this man. He is listening to the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus uh, spits on the ground. He mixes that spittle with clay, and he applies it to the man's eyes. Now, why does he do that? Because it's medicinal, obviously not. He doesn't even need the clay mixed with spittle applied to the eyes to pull off this miracle. But he's going to underscore two truths. Number one, he's going to unfold the legalism of the Pharisees who saw this as work. And number two, he's going to give this man through the process he sends him some time to think, to contemplate, to process so that he might understand that everyone who sees doesn't really see, and everyone who hears doesn't really hear. Now, obviously, Jesus, in a number of different settings, healed blind people. There are seven people 
who are healed of blindness in the Bible. This one's unique, the only one of con- with congenital blindness. On another occasion, he's in a little town called Capernaum, and he heals two blind men there, and he does so just by touching their eyes. And another occasion, he's in Bethsaida, and there the Bible says that he had no clay, but he took spit and he put it on their eyes, and that particular one blind man there was instantly healed. Excuse me, he was healed in two stages. First, he saw kind of fuzzily, and then he saw clearly, and that's a sermon behind itself, a lesson that he was teaching them. He's leaving old Jericho, and he meets two men shouting out, Son of David, have mercy on us! Jesus stops, and he just touches them, and they're instantly healed. Then he enters new Jericho, Herodian Jericho, the town adjacent to it with some space between, and there's this fellow Bartimaeus shouting the same thing, and Jesus heals them. Seven people, and all done a little bit differently, I think, so that we would not look for some method as much as we would see the message behind each one. He says to this man, notice, verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam, John adds parenthetically, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seen. Now, why did Jesus send him to the pool of Siloam? when the pool of Bethesda was so close to the Temple Mount. Some of you walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, a tunnel that you read of in the Bible that Hezekiah made, whom they found, and the water came safely into the city so that it's three football fields long. It's an exciting walk. And when you, if you remember when you came out of it, we came to the pool of Siloam that was discovered in 2004. And it's a real class A historical spot. And it's called here, John tells us, the pool of Siloam, which translated means scent. This is the scent pool. Why? Because the water is sent from the Gihon Spring, also called by the Jews to this day, the, the, the virgin's fountain. The water is sent from the virgin's fountain to the pool of Siloam. And of course, the word Siloam, which means scent, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Shiloh. If you were reading the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew, also translated into Greek for most Jews who had to read it in Greek in Jesus' day. And the word Siloam translates the Hebrew word Shiloh. And if you remember, that's one of the titles for the Messiah. Send him to wash in the pool called Shiloh, which is called Messiah. So this man had a lot to think about as he walks to this pool called Messiah. John is underscoring this. He is highlighting this because Jesus is the one sent by the Father from the virgin's womb, and he is indeed the Messiah. Look at verse 8. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this one the one who used to sit and beg? Now, remember, according to verse 8, this man would sit at the temple gate, and he would beg every day. He wasn't allowed to go into the temple, but he could stand or sit outside of the temple, and he could beg. And, of course, that was a pretty good place to beg, if you think about it. It's a high-traffic area. There's a fellow I see up the road. He'll often 
be at a major intersection and begging, and they'll have a little sign, and though I thought it interesting because I was in Charleston a few weeks ago, and he was in Charleston on another high-traffic corner. In either case, God alone knows his plight, and some of you have reached out to him, and I'm glad you have. Some people may be out of compassion. I mean, who would be the most compassionate people, the God-fearing people? Where would they go? To the temple. Maybe some were going there with their offering because they were so guilty, and Maybe they thought, well, you know, I'll deal with my guilt. I'll give this guy a dime, a shekel. So he's in a prime spot in which to beg. Now, God heals him. God the Son heals him. And I don't think for one moment that he said, I've been healed. Hey, I can see. No, he was excited. He was elated. I'm healed. I can see. This man wouldn't have been able to have contained himself. For the first time, he can see the blue sky, the trees, the birds, the gold in the temple. He can see a a, a sea of human faces. And of course, his neighbors are dumbfounded. Notice, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. And so others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So there's this mixed reaction. Some were astonished, and they said, this can't be the beggar, can it? Others said, yes, that is him. And still others said, no, that's just some guy who looks like him. I mean, can you imagine? Some guy standing, hey, look, there's a blind man, and he's got no cane or stick. He can see. No, that's not him. Just somebody who looks like him. And over and over again, this guy said, no, it's me. I'm the one. Put your self in this fellow's shoes. He'd been blind his whole life, and he's so excited, and, and people are saying, is he the one? And he can't contain himself. Yes, I'm the one. And someone says, nah, this is just another panhandler's trick. He's not really the one. So after they ask who, they probe, verse 10, how, how then were your eyes opened? Notice his response in verse 11. He answered, the man, circle those words, the man, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. Just a brief, straightforward testimony of what had happened. Now, at this point, he doesn't really know who the Lord Jesus is. All he knows is the man who is called Jesus. He anointed my eyes. He said to me, go to Siloam and watch. So I went and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They want to know about Jesus' whereabouts. They want to meet this man who did this miracle. And at this point, of course, he had not seen the Lord Jesus. At this point, all he had heard was his voice. And so he simply refers to him, the man called Jesus. He's healed, but he's not yet saved. But God's at work in his life. Now, beyond the case and the cure, let's think about the clash. The clash with the blind man. We read now in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees him who is formerly blind. Now, if you think the neighbors were bad, wait till you encounter the Pharisees, those straight-faced, stone-faced legalists. I think the truism is true that when you lose your smile, you've lost half your testimony. These guys should have been overjoyed. Maybe this is the Messiah. 
because God said this would be a miracle Messiah would do. My wife and I often joke about a guy we call Mr. Hostage. She calls him that. She came home from Walmart one day. She said, you know, there I was getting some hosta plants. And this guy was just cranking away there at the lady behind the desk and talking about how deficient the plant was. And she said, he was just a grumpy old man. I felt so bad for that lady behind the counter. We often say when we see people like that, we don't want to be like Mr. Hosta. I hope you don't either. When I see Christians just cranking on people, complaining, and treating them like a thing rather than a person. These guys, their religion had no joy to it because it was dead religiosity. Look further at verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now why did John drop that in here? Because that's the real issue for the Pharisees. You see, they viewed any kind of work as they defined the work as illegal. And of course, their definition of work was far different from God's definition. Remember, during a 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew, there was no prophet in Israel. And so the religious leadership in Israel had developed a number of do's and don'ts as to what constituted work. These guys, they should have been praising God for a miracle because only God could open up someone's eyes who'd been blind from birth. But they're just griping about the fact that Jesus took clay and, and he mixed it with spittle and he did work by applying it to this man's eyes. And they had so many different views of what you could do and what you couldn't do. It'd be okay to get your horse if he fell in the dish and ditch and pull them out, but you couldn't make clay on the Sabbath. And that's the problem with man-made religion. It never has any consistency to it. Verse 15, we read, again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking, and by the tense of the verb that John uses, they were asking over and over and over again. They kept asking him who had received his sight. And he said, he applied clay to my eyes. Hold it right there in their minds. That, that settled it. He applied clay to my eyes. He worked. And then he said, I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying... How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So at this point, the Pharisees, the separated ones themselves, are divided into two groups. One on one side of the fence on the basis of legalism. The other on the other side of the fence on the basis of logic. Their conclusion on one side of the fence is this is a miracle. And how could this guy pull off a miracle if God wasn't on his team, look at verse 17, where they now go to the healed man. They said, therefore, to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. He's not intimidated by their threats. When asked who Jesus is, he says he's a prophet. How would he have come to that conclusion? Because some of the prophets in a unique group, Moses, Joshua, 100 years went by, Elijah, Elisha, 
did miracles. Now, this, of course, is a unique miracle. Isaiah, Malachi, Haggai, uh, none of those men ever did miracles. They come in the great ganglions of spiritual history. Moses and Joshua does them. Hundreds of years go by. Elijah and Elisha does them. Hundreds of years go by. Christ and the apostles and who knows how long until the final cluster that will happen during the great tribulation period. But those frauds and fakes today who will tell you that God wants to do miracles throughout all of biblical time, they haven't even read their Bibles. But it will fill seat and it will fill bank accounts and buy jet airplanes. He's a prophet. Now, it's not, he's not just a man. He's a prophet. He's, he's not saved yet, but he's moving in the right direction. So the Pharisees, they've got a dilemma on their hand. They're divided between them. So they have to decide. So what are they going to do? Now they're going to go to the parents. They hope to find something they missed. Maybe his neighbors were mistaken, but his parents can't be fooled. I mean, they would know. Verse 18, the Jews therefore did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how does he see? They hammer a series of questions. Three, is this your son? Question number one. Was he born blind? Question number two. How does he now see? Question number three. And so intimidated, they answer with caution. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he shall speak for himself. They answer question number one, he is our son, we know that. They answer question number two, yes, he was born blind, we know that. But they refuse to answer question number Three, so they put it back in the boys. He's a big boy, ask him. Now, normally, the parents of a son born blind who had been healed would be elated and they'd be shouting it. But John explains their caution. Notice his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, Messiah, he should be put out of the synagogue. His parents were so reticent in answering the Pharisees' questions because of fear. They could be put out of the synagogue. What would that mean in the first century? It would mean that you were excluded both socially and economically from the whole Jewish community. You had a business, it was now boycotted, 1,000% boycotted. You had no Jewish friends. You were excommunicated in this life. They didn't want to be put out. And if you want to read the details, read the epistle to the Hebrews, because that's what the first century Jewish Christians were contending with. For this reason, his parents said in verse 23, he's of age, ask him. They don't want to be excommunicated from the synagogue. But I'll tell you what is far more awful. It's to be excommunicated from heaven for all of eternity. The Bible says in Proverbs, the fear of man brings a snare. Jesus taught the same truth in the parable of the sower, remember? Some seed falls on thorny soil, and the fear of man and the riches of this world will keep some people from making a decision for Jesus. 
So they interrogate them a second time, verse 24. So a second time they, they call the man who was born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, when the text says, give glory to God, they're not saying, praise Jehovah for what he has done. This is a Hebrew idiom. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, put out in the margin next to this Joshua 7.19. If you remember on that occasion when Achan stole some of the spoils of war that God forbade, they brought him in front of the crowd and they said, tell the truth. It's a way of putting someone under oath does not mean praise God for what he has done, but admit Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. Tell the truth. He therefore answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Now, let me clarify two truths at this point. First, again, he does not know Jesus yet personally. He has spoken about the man who healed him and the prophet. And secondly, he, he's still spiritually blind. Why? Because he, he, he does not know whether Jesus is the son of David. Remember, three great Davidic terms. Son of David, that spoke of his right to rule. God said, 2 Samuel 7, he would put someone on David's throne who would rule forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah will be an eternal person. And then throughout the New Testament as well, son of man, that speaks of the humanity of the Messiah, son of God. A baby is going to be born. The baby's name will be called mighty God. God is going to take on our humanity. And so to say any of those terms was to say the other. And so not satisfied, of course, with the answer. He knows one thing for sure, I, I don't know whether Jesus is a sinner or not, but I do know that I was blind before and now I can see. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, about this time, you're getting weary of hearing the same questions over and over again, and I'm sure he is as well. So he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples, do you? <laughs> He's not intimidated by their robes, by their phylacteries. He'd never seen such things before. But with a touch of sarcasm, you don't want to become a believer of his, do you? Now, the word to in the sentence is very significant because he knew they had absolutely no intention of that. But he knew that he had to take sides. He identifies himself with Jesus. He's now moving in the right direction. Now, they're furious over that remark. And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. They insult the man's identification with Jesus. They said, we are certain about Moses. We don't know about this one called Jesus. That's the problem with the Pharisees. It's the problem with many people today. Don't confuse me with the truth. They would have been called the conservatives of the day, and rightly so in the sense that unlike the Sadducees who denied the miracles in the Bible, they affirmed them, but they were more than conservatives, they were preservatives. They preserved the old religion. When God had promised a new covenant 
where he would give new life, where he'd take the heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, where he'd put the Spirit of God within a person's bosom, that everyone could know the Lord from Moses all the way down to the smallest name you've never heard of. Now, four, the comeback from the blind man. Beyond the case, the cure, the clash, let's think about the comeback from the blind man. The comeback from the blind man. We read now in verse 30, the man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You guys, you're supposed to know everything and you don't know where he's from. This guy is giving them a lesson in practical theology. He probably knew Psalm 66, 18. The Jews sung it. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If he were a sinner like you said, then why did God hear him and do something that had never been done in the history of the world? How can you call him a sinner? Shouldn't you call him God-fearing? He's moving closer. He's a God-fearing man. A formerly born blind man is exercising just basic biblical wisdom. But they don't like this budding theologue. Look at verse 34. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us. <laughs> they put him out. And sometimes when you confront religiosity, who are you? We've got 2,000 years, they would say, of popes on our side. Who are you? to take your little Bible and challenge us. That's what dead religiosity does. And it's not done just in the Protestant realm, it's done in the, I mean, in the Catholic realm, it's done in the Protestant realm as well. Who are you to tell us these things? You were born entirely in sin. Now put, your guy, put yourself in this guy's shoes. For the first time in his life, he can see. He looks up, he sees the blue sky, he sees the trees, he sees the birds, he looks around, he, he sees the gold of the temple that he had heard about his whole life, he sees clothes for the first he sees his own body for the first time, but then when he looks within, why won't they accept this miracle? And if I go home, I'm going to incriminate my own parents. But this man is close. He's close to the kingdom of God. Jesus said to one man when he gave his answer, he said, you're very close to the kingdom of God. Implication, not all people are as far away as some. Some are closer to becoming saved, but close is not the same as being in the kingdom. He's not in the kingdom yet. That brings us finally to the conversion of the blind man his conversion. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? You know, he immediately knows that voice. He had never seen Jesus with his eyes, but he knows the voice. And as the good shepherd, he cares for his sheep. 
And Jesus goes after one of these sheep who was lost to bring him into the flock. And so Jesus asked him a diagnostic question of sort. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Again, Son of Man, Son of God, equal terms. It's an affirmation concerning the Messiah. They're used interchangeably. And he said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Persekenusain. It's to fall down on your face in worship of God. And unlike Paul, when they tried to worship him, and he tore his robes. Unlike Peter, when they tried to worship him, and he tore his robes. And they said, we're just men, don't worship us. Jesus received that worship. That is either the ultimate act of blasphemy, or it's absolutely correct. But when the JWs show up at your door and they say, we believe in Jesus like you do, you just ask them, do you worship Jesus? And they'll say, no, we don't. Then you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible that I believe in. So here's a man who in verse 11 says, the man called Jesus. In verse 17, he refers to him as a prophet. In verse 31, he refers to him as God-fearing. In verse 33, as a man from God. And now he worships him as Lord. Now all the time, the Pharisees are there and they're watching. Look at their response. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. When Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, he is not, by the way, as the liberal scholar says, contradicting what he said in John 3, when he said the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. In John 3, he's emphasizing the reason why he came into this world, that men could be saved from the penalty of sin. But here he's emphasizing the result of not coming to him, of choosing to close your eyes, and it is judgment and condemnation. Now, what a contrast between this beggar and these Pharisees. The beggar admitted his need, and he received both physical and spiritual sight. But the Pharisees thought they had it all together, and while they could see physically, they were blind spiritually. And so picking up on Christ's statement in verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. The listening Pharisees heard what Jesus said, and they are perturbed by it. When they asked, we're not blind too, are we? Instruction in the Greek text where it implies a negative answer. They expect a negative answer. No, you're not blind. You're, you're God's man. But that's not what he tells them. He had already told them, you are the blind leading the blind. And in just a matter of days, as recorded in Matthew's account, they're going to attribute the miracles that Jesus does to the devil, and they will commit the ultimate 
unforgivable sin because they have rejected the witness of God the Father. They would have rejected the witness of God the Son, and the only one left to work on them and convince them was God the Spirit. And when they say his work is of the devil, then they will commit an eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness, neither in this age or in the age to come. It's a paradox. If you were blind, you would be better off. Why? Because that would mean you had no sin. But because you claim to see, you're guilty and unforgiven. It's not like you don't have any evidence. You've got plain evidence before your eyes. I've been doing it for three years. But you're blind. Now, how are we going to apply this text today? Let me make some five applications for you to jot down, and I'll be done. Number one, I learned from the miracle of this man's healing physically and spiritually that before we are saved, we are spiritually blind. Before we're saved, we're spiritually blind. As this man was born physically blind, the Bible teaches we are born spiritually blind. Why are we born spiritually blind? Paul tells us when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he says, the God of this world, that's the devil, small g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. Now, the disciples wanted to know why he was born blind. Was it his parents' sin or was it his personal sin? And Jesus said, it's not personal, it's not parental, it's congenital. Why? Because in iniquity I was brought forth. We are born with a sin nature. By nature, we are children of wrath, the Bible says. Until we admit that we have a problem, a problem of spiritual blindness, since you say we see, your sin remains. And if you're blind spiritually, and you're not willing to admit that you have a spiritual problem, you'll never have a need for a Savior. People all the time say, well, I can save myself. Why should God let you in heaven? And they rattle off what they've done. They're blind. Second, before we can be saved, and this follows closely with the first, we must be beggars. Now, you can be worth millions of dollars here today, but outside of Christ, God views you as a bankrupt beggar. And there are people today who would be willing to pay for salvation. Just give them the price. They'd work for it if they could. But God asks you to come as a beggar. And you might be thinking this morning, I'm just fine. I'm happy with the where I'm at. Thank you very much. And God would say what he said to the church at Laodicea, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This man who is born blind and a beggar is an illustration of all of us outside of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, Jesus said, the mouth speaks what's in the heart. So, remember, I asked you to say it back to yourself, why should God let you into heaven? People give one of four answers. I don't know. It's a common answer. I don't, I don't know what I'd say. I'd be speechless. By the way, we're all born in ignorance. We're all born not knowing. So, you have to hear at some point. The light has to dispel the darkness. The truth has to dispel the error. Some gave the second answer here, an answer of good works. I've done this, this, I've never done so-and-so. 
If you feel like you're super good, you might put yourself at 100. If you feel like you're super bad, you might say zero. That answer won't make it. Some give a Christ plus answer. Faith in Jesus plus good works will give you salvation. By the way, that's the official position of Roman Catholicism. That's what the Protestant Reformation was about. That's why in this stained glass window, sola gratia on the left, sola fide on the right. Grace alone, faith alone. That's what the Reformation was about. Are we saved by Jesus plus good works? Do we merit grace by the things we do where we earn our salvation? Or are we saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our faith in him alone? You have to decide. I'm not here to bash Catholics. If you love people, you will tell them the truth. When I meet, met someone just last week who was gay, I told them the truth. I said, no, your, your, your sin is reprehensible. When I met someone this week living in adultery, I said, no, you, adulterers have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If that's your lifestyle, you've never been born again. That wasn't hate speech. Nancy Pelosi is the one with the hate speech. She's the one with the hate speech by saying that a preacher like me telling the truth that I'm doing evil. That's the hate speech. Faith in Jesus alone will bring you salvation and good works will flow. Your life will change. Faith in him to do what? To save you. Not faith to put the next meal on the table, to keep you safe tonight. Those are daily bread expressions of faith. God is asking you to believe him for what he's already done. So I ask you again, are you a beggar? If you said, well, I don't know how I should answer, then clearly you're not a beggar at all. You don't know that you're a beggar. Or if you gave the second and third answer of good works or an answer that contained good works, you're saying, basically, I'm not that bad a guy. And you're also saying, so you're not owning your sin fully. And number two, you're saying that when Jesus shouts, it's finished, it's not really paid in full. I have to help him out. And you haven't yet come to the only one who can save you. Listen, he either saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he'll never, ever, ever, ever save you at all. Third, in order to have spiritual sight, we need an internal touch from God. A blind man needs more than light. He needs sight. If somehow you could have shown a flashlight in this man's eyes, he wouldn't have seen it. Years ago, myself and in fact, Jerry Stokes, we went to visit a person in the early days. We had no church building except on Sunday morning that we rented, so we had no place to meet people. 100% of all my appointments were in homes, and we drove up to this home and said, it doesn't look like anyone's home. It's dark, no lights on, no car in the driveway. I said, I'll knock on the door anyway. So I knock on the door, and Willie opens. Hey, Willie. He said, come on in. We walk in, there's no lights on. It was already dark. I said, hey, Willie, you think we could turn on a light? It's kind of dark in here. And, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor. I, I'm blind. I don't need the lights. That's why he had no car. He didn't need a car. See, a blind man does not need light. He needs sight. And by God's mercy, that man got more than physical sight. That night he got spiritual sight, and I baptized him. He's still serving Christ in Columbia. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you know why Governor Como, a good Catholic, so to speak, 
can't see that that little baby is a human being because he's hardened himself against general revelation and he's not been born again where he can see spiritual truth. Do you know why all those preachers were, were applauding this wicked, depraved governor? Because they cannot see spiritual truth. A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're lost. And when God shines the light of the gospel into your heart, you would be wise to respond. Because he is the true light, John says, that enlightens every man. And when he's shining the light, don't shut it off because today is the day to be saved. For we should not ignore God's initiative to open our spiritual eyes. You don't want to ignore this. You say, how can anyone ignore it? Listen, we sing it sometimes. He loved me ere I knew him. You know it? He loved me ere I knew him. I can't even remember the tune now. How's it going, Matt? Give me a verse. Come on, Matt. I know victory in Jesus. How does the tune go? He loved me ere I knew him. Sing it out loud. Come on. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is to him. Thank you. He loved me ere. You know the word ere means, means before. It means before. Why did he love you before you know him? Because you were dead in sin. A dead man has no capacity to respond. That's why Jesus said, unless the Father draws you, no one can come to him. That's why Stephen said to unbelieving Jews who ended up stoning him, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. And so they stoned their Jewish brother to death. Unless it has been granted by the Father, you can't come to God on your own. You can't take any credit for anything you've done because it's all of Him from beginning to end. The only thing you have to do is decide. Which brings me to the final point. We should respond by receiving spiritual sight. The saying is true. There are none so blind as those who refuse to see. When Jesus met someone who claimed to be righteous, he sent them away unforgiven. When he met someone who claimed to be full, he sent that person away hungry. When he met someone who claimed to see, he said they went home blind. There was nothing these Pharisees could do, but their pride wouldn't let them see that. You say, Pastor, I'm not sure that heaven is my home. Well, if you're not sure, you're still blind. And God wants you to see. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. I am the way, not your human effort. No one comes to the Father but through me. If we could be saved by keeping the law, there is no need for Christ to die. Now listen, there's two groups of people here within the sound of my voice. Some who are saved... And there's something that we must do. And just be honest with yourself. Am I doing what God says is a must? As a saved person on my way to heaven, am I exercising my privilege and my responsibility to attempt to bring people to Jesus? 
And then there's some of us today, we just gave the wrong answers. You say, but I got saved in some church. Now, look, you only get saved once. There's only one physical birth. There's only one spiritual birth. And if you had been saved way back yonder, you would have said 100% why. Nothing I've done, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, period. You have to decide. Now, Holy Father, I thank you today for the Lord Jesus. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of people whom he never healed, whom he could have healed. But he didn't come primarily to heal. You said he came to save. But thank you for this miracle that your apostle John recorded that we might believe Jesus is the Messiah and believe in his name. I hate, pray today, Father, for someone here who has never acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Help them in simple childlike faith to believe that you completed the debt payment that we owe you. Help them to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, we see our nation going to pot. It just seems like when it couldn't get worse, it gets worse. But I thank you that you are on your throne and that you are ruling in heaven above. And in your perfect timetable, you will bring your son back from heaven. And when that darkness falls, when night comes, no one will be able to work. So help us in this hour to be faithful stewards of the gospel of your Son. Help us this week to think about how people perceive us and view us, not for our sake, but for your sake and for the gospel's sake. And we know we can't share with everyone, but there's someone we can share with. And as I've been asking you, Father, I pray that every single member of our church would be used of you this year to bring one person into the kingdom. May you do that for your glory, for your honor. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing our hymn of invitation today. And if you're here and you have said today or in previous days or weeks, Jesus, save me, you've never made it public. That's your first act of obedience. Someone asked me yesterday if sprinkling was baptism. I said, no, it's not baptism, it's sprinkling. It's not baptism. The Bible uses a different word, ratizo. God uses the word baptizo. It means to submerge. Only submerging pictures death, burial, and resurrection. And God asks us after we're saved to be submerged, to give him glory for what he has done for us. It's a symbol, but it's our confession of faith. Some of you haven't done that. Your baptism is not on the right side of your conversion. I want to invite you today to make that decision. Maybe you're saved and baptized. You might be in Aiken County this morning. Or you're on our Bluffton Hilton Head campus. And there's a decision that you need to make. I want to invite you to leave your seat and come to that front row. And there'll be someone there to help you as there will be here. So Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, step out and come now.